I want to speak tonight about intention and specifically what I see as three kinds or levels of intentions and hopefully to clarify the power and the purpose of wisely relating to intentions. We often use the English word intention uh, kind of sloppily or have a number of words that we use when we talk about intention like motivation or aspiration. And I want to see if we can tease out what we're actually talking about and how to engage skillfully with this mental factor of intention. It's key in the Buddha's teachings. He talked again and again about the power and the importance of intentions. And I've heard that in the Tibetan teachings, they say that everything rests on the tip of intention, that our whole of our life and path is resting on the tip of intention. And so it's seen that intention shapes our actions and how we respond to and experience the world, our skillful and unskillful actions. And you may have heard this prayer, this uh, plea that uh, I got from the internet. (laughs) Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or grumpy, nasty, selfish or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed, and from then on, I'm really going to need a lot more help. (laughs) Most of us need a lot more help. What we rely on, though, rather than some external uh, influence, is the power of mindfulness. The power of mindfulness to reveal this mental functioning of intention and to uh, really point to the choices that we make and what's informing those choices from what uh, conditions are we making these choices. And this whole question of intention kind of begs the, the endless discussion about free will. Is there or isn't there free will? Endless philosophical, scientific, neuroscience debates about this uh, subject of free will. Um, But I find that in those debates, the same data can be used to come to completely different uh, responses. And it really is a part of our own conditioning as to how we relate to that. And for me, how I relate to that question is, if there isn't free will, why would we put ourselves through this? If we didn't have the power to shape our minds, and therefore our life's trajectory, we could all just sit back and see what happens. But I think it's incumbent on us to really open to and inquire into this functioning of intention and how we can relate to it wisely as an important part of our path. Because as the Buddha says, intention shapes our mind stream and therefore it shapes karma, our actions. And the Buddha talked a lot about actions and the shaping of the mind. He said, whatever one frequently dwells on and thinks about, that will become the inclination of the mind. Talking about how the repetition of habit shapes us out of these kinds of intention. And with mindfulness, we can actually bring that process into the light of clear seeing. And then there's the possibility 
of making wiser choices in response to what we see. And so we talk a lot about developing skillful means, upaya, through our own investigation of this mind and body, not through some external um, teachings or guidelines, but just from what we learn from our direct experience, basically about what causes suffering and how we incline the mind and heart to freedom. We learn it from our own direct experience and we start to see that we don't need to, or it's not in our best interest, to run on automatic pilot, to be running out of our previous habits and conditionings that for many people are just programs that run. As soon as they get up in the morning, the same habits and preferences just run on unfiltered and uncensored and that's how they live our lives. Here we can see we can actually start to shape those processes by what we pay attention to and how we pay attention to that. And as we bring wise understanding to our experience, again in these very simple terms of what causes suffering, what creates well-being. And a big part of our meditation practice, may have talked about this already, is deconstructing our experience. This whole mind-body process can feel so complex, so convoluted and pushed and pulled by forces sometimes clearly seen, but often subconscious, unconscious, we're not even really aware of. And we can often feel at the mercy or the, vic- or the victim of our experience and our moods and emotions. So we deconstruct. One of the simple lenses we use is just the six sense doors. What's happening in our seeing, tasting, smelling, feeling, and this more complex arena of the mind? But we can start to know that in that direct way. We can use another lens we call the aggregates or the khandhas, the five khandhas. We'll probably talk about that in one of the future talks. Dividing our experience up into the four foundations. Let's pay attention now to the body, now to Vedna, now to the mind. Just different ways of coming at a clearer understanding of this mind-body process. Using acronyms like RAIN that we've mentioned, where we recognize what's happening. We accept or allow it to be as it is. We bring interest or intimacy And we don't identify, we don't take it personally. These are different ways of beginning to understand our experience. And in the same way, we can bring that same careful seeing to intentions, to this powerful functioning of intention. And as I said, there are, what I see is three different kinds or levels of intention that the Buddha spoke about. And they're operating on different time frames most of the time. The most immediate one is chetana, which we usually translate as intention. And that's the moment-to-moment intention that's happening all the time. And the next level is aditana. And that's usually translated as resolution or determination. And it gives a direction to the moment-to-moment intentions, aditana. And then the biggest level is a, a path factor, one of the noble eightfold path, and that's samasankapa, wise intention or wise thought. And this is an expression of wisdom, of the first path factor, which is wise view or wise understanding. 
And it has three components, the intention towards renunciation, towards non-harming, and towards non-ill will. So I'll talk about all of those tonight and how they feed into, cycle through, and support each other. So I really see them as a triangle. And if you know anything about triangles, they're considered to be very stable. But this triangle is very flexible. Sometimes they collapse and they're all in the moment, informing and enlivened, um, active for ourselves. At other times, one or the other might more be leading and shaping our experience. But there's this fluidity and flexibility and informing feedback loops that are happening between these three levels of intention. So starting with the first, the most um, common or universal, which is chaitana, intention. It's considered to be a universal mental factor in that it's happening every moment, that intention is arising and passing, arising and passing at all different levels, at all, in all aspects of experience all the time. And so we can begin to practice with this in our meditation practice here on retreat. Andrea spoke about it the other morning, about how we can... Um, heighten our sensitivity, our curiosity about, about that about-to moment that is intention that we can notice. There are many intentions that it's, it's, they're so subtle it's very difficult for us to notice. So we start where it's simple, but this is that urge to do that precedes any action. And again, in Buddhism, volitional action, actions done with intention, are what creates karma. And it, karma literally means action, and it, it's the seeds that we plant that ripen into future experience. So skillful seeds ripen at some point. You know, it's not a linear process to well-being in the future. Unskillful seeds will bring difficulty, challenge, and suffering. In the time of the Buddha, karma had a simpler meaning. It, it did just mean action. It also, often meant also sort of duty or fate. It was, it was just a, a sense of the, um, a simple understanding of this term. But the Buddha changed the understanding in his teachings to add this mental factor of intention and that that's what creates karma. So actions that are done without intention don't carry a karmic weight in the same way that actions done with intention do. But this can lead us into a misunderstanding because of the constant arising of this karmic intention, actions done with intention. We need to be sensitive to the impact of our actions. We saying that, oh, what matters is the intention if I had good intentions and then someone got hurt or harmed, oh, well, that's not my fault or my responsibility. You know, don't, don't blame me kind of thing. I had good intentions. And yet someone really felt an impact from our speech or our actions. It may have been unintended. But this, this teaching isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. How we respond to the impact is where the intention come ba- comes back into play. It's always at play. And as we live and work and practice 
in diverse communities with people from different ethnic and racial and economic backgrounds, from different gender or sexual orientation, there can, there can often be um, unintended impact out of what seemed for us to be good intentions. We have to take responsibility for that. As I said, this teaching isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so we start to look more closely at intentions and realize that most of the time we have mixed intentions. We might think they're good intentions, but it's more complex than that. And also we are subject to unconscious biases and motivations that we're not fully aware of. And so that also plays into how we show up in the world, our speech and our actions. And so we need to learn to respond skillfully if we get the feedback that our actions, even good intentions, may have hurt or harmed someone else. And so there's always that feedback loop happening. We don't just put things out in the world and say, oh, well, my intentions were good, whatever happened. There is a power to creating and acting out of good intentions, but just to recognize it's, it's more complex than that. And all of us need a great deal of humility and sensitivity and compassion for ourselves and for others as we navigate our way in our communities, in our practice settings, in our lives, etc. And this sense of um, that the way we act or the way things are usually done is the right way, the way it's always been done, there can be a rigidity about that that doesn't allow for the fullness of experience of a diverse community that Spirit Rock and IMS are hoping to cultivate. And so it can be a huge area of learning, this question or this this um, dynamic between intention and impact and learning wise responses so that we are acting compassionately, but also willing to grow and learn in this whole area of how we show up in the world. But it said that nothing happens without an intention preceding it. It's the teaching that Intentions are universal mental factors means literally they're happening all the time. It's just most of the time we don't realize it. We don't realize that we're acting out of this kind of programming, out of condition certain intentions arise, we act out of them. Unless we bring this into the light of mindfulness, as I said, these programs will just continue to run. Even if they're no longer skillful, even if they no longer serve us, even if we're not really even aware of them running. And so, again, mindfulness gives us a chance to start to work skillfully with the intentions and the subsequent actions that come out of us, out of that. So it's simply this kind of act of will, urge to do, that precedes any action or movement from the fluttering of an eyelash to beginning a journey around the world. Intention precedes those actions. And so beginning to recognize it, that it's there influencing us, whether we're aware of it or not, and it's in our best interest to become 
aware of it. Again, not on this minute level of an eyelash fluttering or whatever, but in, especially in these intentions that start to shape us because they do have consequences and we learn that very quickly. I will turn to my favorite contemporary philosophers, Calvin and Hobbes again. Again, Calvin is a young boy, Hobbes is his imaginary tiger, always getting into trouble. And they're walking through the snow. And Calvin says, I wish Santa would publish the guidelines he uses for determining a kid's goodness. For example, how much does he weigh motives? Does he consider the kid's natural predisposition? I mean, if some sickeningly wholesome nerd likes being good, it's easy for him to meet the standards. There's no challenge. Next, he's starting, he's kneeling down. Now he's starting to make a snowball. Heck, anyone can be good when they want to be. The true test of one's mettle is being good when one has an innate inclination towards evil. (laughs) And then he's making a snowball. I think one good act by me, even if it's just to get Christmas presents, should count as five good acts by some sweet-tempered kid motivated by the pureness of his heart, don't you? And then Susie, his nemesis and sometimes friend, is in the distance. Calvin's there with the snowball. Hey, Susie, womp! Whams her with the snowball, and then they're running away. And Hobbes says, of course, in your case, the question is academic. Calvin says, I wanted to put a rock in the snowball, but I didn't. That should be worth a lot. So he's aware of the power of intention and motivation, but trying to gain, game the system, trying to make it work in his favor, even though his natural inclination is not to um, refining his intentions for well-being. So we start to look, what are these motivations and intentions that cause us to move, to respond. Uh, one of our friends and colleagues, Gil Fronsdale, always says around the hindrances, what do the hindrances motivate you to do? What do they sort of bring into being in your response to the experience of one of the hindrances being present? Because if we look, I mean, in some simplistic way, we're motivated either by skillful or unskillful intentions. Of course, it's complex, as I said, and they're changing all the time. But this can be really interesting to start to pay attention to. Again, as Andrea invited us into the other morning. Not helpful to start with the really complex ones, these subtle or challenging ones, but to start understanding or looking at this quality, this mental factor of mind with the kind of gross movements from sitting to standing, from standing to walking. In the walking meditation, a really good place to look as you stand at the beginning of your walking path. What is there in that moment before you take that first step, that urge to do? What does it feel like? Again, it's not like there's a neon sign, some sort of place that intention resides, but we can start to feel into it, this energy, this bubbling up, this coalescing that is a a felt experience, and then movement happens. What often happens is you really pay attention, it kind of, it's like a, a bubble in a mud pool, it kind of bubbles up but then collapses again because it's brought into the level of mindfulness. 
I like exploring this if I'm exercising really vigorously, say running uphill, and the body's getting tired, you know, huffing and puffing. But I've really seen it's not the body that gives up. It's the mind. There's some gap in the, in the, in the intention to keep going, some thought, I can't do this anymore. And then I find I've stopped. I give up. But if I can pay attention to that moment and keep the intention to moving, maybe I adjust my speed or whatever, I can keep going. It's that collapsing, that thought of I can't do this anymore that actually breaks the impetus to keep moving. And so this can be a really interesting place to explore, say, in the sitting meditation. If things are getting uncomfortable or the mind's getting restless, what is it that actually precipitates movement? Is there some collapsing, some giving up? Is it a wise and compassionate response to the body being uncomfortable? Or is it just a, a, a habit of moving away from what's difficult? So just again exploring. I'm not you know, saying you should sit through pain at all. But as you notice that urge to move, just to explore a little, what's around that? What are those preceding moments like? What have you been paying attention to? And what's like the, the tipping point that brings you into movement, into responding? So again, we can just get curious about this about-to moment, this urge to do in this, in this subtle way. And again, helpful to explore it in somewhat neutral territory, like in the walking meditation. And then we can expand our curiosity to more complex experiences. The next level of intention is aditana. Again, translated usually as determination or resolution. Um, It's one of the paramis, these beautiful qualities of heart and mind that we develop as we journey on our spiritual path. It's said that the Buddha brought all of them to perfections. They're called the Ten Perfections, the Paramis, as he was on his journey to awakening. So it's the Paramis of like generosity, metta, equanimity, patience, renunciation. It's said that Aditana is the necessary Parami for any of the others to develop. Unless we cultivate this Parami of this mental factor of uh, aditana, of determination, we won't carry through with the development of the paramis. We won't, won't bring the commitment that it takes. And so it's the quality of endurance or commitment that enables us to carry through with our intentions, to take that moment-to-moment intention into a repeated or a sustained development of a quality of mind, of an attitude, of an action. Aditana is intention, chaitana, sustained. And so aditana is what got all of us here. All of the, the sense of motivation and intention, all of the pieces of the puzzle that each of us in our different ways had to put together to arrive at the retreat. And it's what keeps us going, getting up in the morning, committing to a day of practice, of mindfulness. I think I've already used this quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, there are only two things you need to be successful in this path of practice, to start and keep going. 
Well, the starting is the chetana, the keeping going is the aditana. It's what keeps us moving. And we need this quality of mind, this determination, this resolution, because this path is not easy to deepen our levels of wisdom and compassion, to bring more awakening, more insight into our lives. The forces of our own minds and hearts can go against that, and certainly the forces of our culture and the the culture at large, our specific culture and conditioning. But all of us have heard some kind of call to truth and begun this, this journey, this epic journey, this archetypal journey, from confusion into clarity. We will be tested again and again and again, just like the mythical kinds of journeys. We'll have aids and support, mentors and teachers, guides and friends. We'll have pitfalls and places of being lost, but aditana is what keeps us going and what is so essential. And this testing can happen on deeper and deeper levels. It doesn't necessarily get easier as we continue. But I really see for us who commit to practice like this in this extended way, somehow the Dhamma hook has got in, this door has been opened and you know that through that door is, is truth, is a way of being in the world that has more freedom, more clarity, more compassion, is valuable. I saw that for myself when I sat my first retreat. I was living in India. I was actually living in McLeod Gunj where the Dalai Lama lives. He was kind of often in the neighborhood. I was trying to teach myself meditation uh, from books I remember reading Jack Cornfield's book. It was called uh, Living Buddhist Masters. Now they have to reissue it, Recently Dead Buddhist Masters, because most of them have died, unfortunately. I was trying to learn the Mahasi technique of noting from reading his chapter in the book. It wasn't going very well. It's hard enough in the best of times, but that was not a way in. But I was really trying. I I just started reading the Dhamma, my first Dhamma book. I think it was... um, a gesture of balance. It just, something spoke to me. And of course, there were a lot of Tibetans and Tibetan teachers around, but that path was too convoluted for me. I couldn't find a way in. So someone said to me, if you want to learn to meditate, go to S.N. Goenka. He teaches, you know, Vipassana, clear and simple, straightforward meditation. So I said, great, I'll go. Of course, things weren't, this is back in the early 80s. There was definitely no internet or ways of communicating. I just knew the retreat was in Jaipur. That's a big city. Uh, so I just went there and started asking people I thought might know, do you know, where, and, you know, there's a whole long story there, but I found it, found the retreat. Aditana, I kept going. Um, and something happened on that retreat. I, I couldn't explain to you what. But this Dharma hook got in, I knew there was something there. And one of the ways I frame it is I heard teachings that said it was possible not to suffer. I didn't know that was possible. And I certainly didn't know it was possible not to cause suffering in my relationships. I thought that was just inevitable as we bumped up against each other in all of our confusion and wanting. But I saw that that was possible. I certainly didn't manifest that immediately, or even perhaps not for a long time, but saw that it was possible. (laughs) Still a work in progress. 
But that was the beginning of my Dhamma journey of Aditana and intention. And after that retreat, I just kept making choices about how can I do more retreats, be around Dharma people. So I did a couple more retreats in India. I went Bodhgaya to Bodhgaya and sat with Christopher, and that was just amazing to sit with a Western teacher. I sat another retreat with Joseph and James Barras and Manindraji and Deepamar, and that was, again, just mind, heart opening. Just felt the power of this practice. When I finally left India, I went to Europe. I was going to meet up with my boyfriend and my sister, but I really wanted to stay in touch with the Dhamma. So I wrote to the retreat center where um, Christopher, and Christ- the Christ- Christopher and Christina Feldman, Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman had started, was called East Farmhouse then, and said, can I come on retreat? And at that point, again, no internet, no texting, no smartphones. I had to go to the poster restaurant. There are people here who probably don't even know what that is, but it was the post office would collect your mail and you'd have to predict where you were going to be for people to send to the poster restaurant in you know, King's Cross or Delhi or wherever you were traveling. And so I went to collect my mail one day after having written this letter and they said, oh great, yes, there is a retreat. Come, there's one starting this weekend. So I said, great, you know, put everything in my backpack, got the, the bus to the tube station, the tube station to Paddington Station, the long train strip trip down to southern England to Salisbury in that train station, get the bus, the bus journeys on into the countryside. Finally, the bus stops and the driver says, because I told him I wanted to go to Wiley, um, says, here's your stop. And I I look out and there's nothing there. (laughs) He said, no, no, you know, cross the, the turnstile, walk across the field, go down that path by the river, turn left. And then it's like, okay. (laughs) You know, I didn't have a clue where I was. The bus trundles off and off I set looking for this retreat center. The good thing in an English village, find the pub or the post office, someone will tell you where to go. Somehow I found, it was just a farmhouse, East Farmhouse on the edge of the village, but I found it. You know that sense of relief when you've journeyed. It was like, you know, the epic journey, traveling all this way, and I arrived. I remember walking in through the gates, there was a big courtyard, and there was a young man working on a car, Um, obviously getting ready to go somewhere. And he looked up at me with great concern in his face and he said, you haven't come for the retreat, have you? And I thought, God, did my reputation precede me? Did Christopher write and say, if Sally comes, you know, don't let her in? He said, you better go inside. I'm like, my God, this is not very welcoming. I thought, you know, there'd be a bustle of activity of us all getting ready for retreat. I go inside and there is a big bustle of activity and every, you know when you walk into a room and everyone turns and faces you with a look of, again, concern? I'm like, what's going on here? These people are very strange. They tell me that that letter that I received didn't have a date on it. And the retreat I thought I was coming to started the week before and had finished that day. And not only was that the case, that, but normally there would be managers, they had two managers at a time, who would keep the place going, but there was a gap between retreats and managers, and everyone was literally packing up, closing the retreat center down and leaving. And so I had to leave. And so I, you know, just made this epic journey, very expensive by 
my India travel standards to get there with a backpack. I had no idea really where I was, nowhere to go. I you know, was just wandering around, staying in different places. I was devastated. You know, I was really so looking forward to being in the Dharma community and all of the effort it took to get there. And I said, well, sit down, have a cup of tea, you know, rest for a bit. But this is what's happening. We're just, they, they were going around literally closing the whole place up. My heart was just broken. I really didn't know what to do, you know, it was getting on in the day. I didn't know where to go, where to stay. I don't know how long this process took, an hour or so later. I was trying to figure out what I would do, you know, anyone I could, how do I even find somewhere to go? Again, no internet, <laughs> smartphones, to no Yelp trip advisor to turn to. Um, and someone came back and said, you know, we've been talking. And you look like you're kind of okay. <laughs> I forget what they said, but basically. So we're all going to leave, but you can stay. And so instead of being turned out, they basically gave me the keys to what to me was the mansion. This English farmhouse in the beautiful countryside with a pantry full of food and a little store nearby. I could get supplies. And they just said, just keep you know, the place going for these two weeks until the next man, the new managers come. And so it was just such a teaching to me of kindness and generosity. And it landed me in that community. And of course, my mind just grasped at that. I wanted to stay. Can't I be the third manager? Don't you need me? I'd be so good. And assistant manager or deputy manager. But <laughs> They said, no, no, we have enough. You have to leave, you know, at that time you have to leave. So I did, I, I left, but I met people there and they got to know me a little and I put my list on the name to be manager at, at the retreat center. I really wanted to come back. So I ended up, I met my boyfriend and we started traveling around through Europe and we were heading more and more east until I finally got a card that said, the position has opened up, you can come. And I looked at my boyfriend and I said, I'm going, I, you know. He said, don't you want to go to Czechoslovakia? And I said, no, I want to go back to meditate to this retreat center and, and be in that community. And so we basically broke up there because I, I wanted, that was my heart's calling. Relationship wasn't going that well, truth be told. <laughs> We'd broken up a number of times before and got back together, but... I made that decision. And so it landed back in that beautiful farmhouse, spent a year there working, serving, practicing, meeting teachers, getting involved in the community. This person, Guy Armstrong, came and, and sat a summer retreat, and I got to know him a little bit. Um, and then that time ended. And again, I was with my backpack, you know, traveling around in, in England. Another friend wanted to go to Ireland. I was going to go there with her. And I got this message, Christopher wants to start a meditation community south of where this house was, down in, near Totnes in, in Devon. And again, I said, I really want to do that. I want to be around the Dhamma. I want to be with Dharma people. Again, I felt bad letting these people down. We were starting to make plans. And I said, just traveling wasn't enough for me anymore. I wanted this connection. And guess who also ended up starting that, being invited to start that community was this same person, Guy Armstrong. So the two of us moved into this beautiful Georgian mansion on the banks of the River Dart. We were given a space upstairs, 
to start a meditation community and ended up, some of you know this story, getting in a relationship and ultimately marrying. That's my husband, Guy Armstrong. So from these choices about staying aligned with the Dharma, my whole life really made this huge turn in, in ways I could never have planned or imagined um, in really meaningful ways. Eventually we stayed in England, stayed in the community for two and a half years, in England another two and a half years, and then he wanted to come back to California. And again, when we came back, my first thought was, where, how can we stay in touch? Uh, both of our thoughts were stay in touch with the Dharma. So we both started volunteering for Spirit Rock. It w- then it was IMW, Insight Meditation West. Guy went and got a job. I started working part-time there and then full-time. Eventually became the executive director. So again, you know, staying close to the Dharma. How can I serve? How can I be in this community? Really has shaped some of my major life choices. And it's unquestionable, powerfully, for, I mean, I could say for the better, but that's not even, doesn't even do justice to the way that intention has shaped my life. Again, in in ways I never could have planned, you know, some idea, a five-year plan, but always in those choice points, what will keep me connected to the Dhamma, to Dharma service, to Dharma people, to Dharma practice, to Dharma teachings. And those choices just served me so well. And so all of us are on some kind of journey like this. You've made this choice, this powerful choice for this retreat, whether it's your first long retreat like this, or you've been here many times before, you've felt the power of that call. And I know for each of us, this factor of determination and aligning with spiritual values with your practice life. It's the best thing you can do, even as we all manifest it so differently. But we need to use this powerful force of determination really skillfully. We can't create agendas or ideals about how our life or our practice will unfold. And I really see this quality of determination manifest in our metta practice. When we use those phrases, may I or may you be happy, be safe, they're called aditanas. They're resolutions that we make over and over again. And I love the way they're framed. May I, not I will or I should or even I am, but may I. And this is, I think, really skillful, that we can direct and incline the mind. You know, may I be mindful for this step? May I be open to this experience? But we can't control it in the way we think we should. Of course, in daily life, it can be helpful to have more of a sense of goals and maybe five-year plans because there perhaps are more structures that we can build in that can accomplish those kind of secular goals. But in our spiritual life, it's not so appropriate to be rigid in that way. It's much more about intention and aspiration, this kind of alignment, this Pali word I think Greg maybe spoke about, sadha or faith, means to place one's heart upon. This is my frame of reference. This is my reference point. We're not in control 
of our spiritual path or practice or even moment-to-moment experience as we'd like to be. But we can certainly come back again and again to this intention, this aditana, this sense of aspiration. Because as I said, all of us will face obstacles moment by moment, the hindrances, the challenges of mind and body, our, our traumas, our fears, our griefs, our worries. Determination is what allows us to persevere in this. There's a, a poem from the Terigata, which are the poems of the enlightened monks. The Terigata is the poems of the enlightened nuns. This one is about determination. It's too hot, it's too cold, too hot, too late in the evening. People who say this, shirking their practice, the moment passes them by. Ever had that thought? It's too cold to practice, too hot to practice, too late. The moment passes them by. Whoever regards cold and heat as no more than grass, doing their duties, won't fall away from ease. With my chest, I push through wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon grass, rushes, cultivating a secluded heart. Just that sense that whatever the conditions, I'll keep moving forward, keep meeting this experience with openness. This is the words of the Buddha again. There are the four resolves, Aditanas, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for relinquishment, letting go, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, one should preserve the truth, one should cultivate relinquishment, and one should train in peace. We can use these larger Aditanas, these these wishes, these guidelines to shape our path and our practice. And then lastly, the biggest frame of intention is Sama Sankapa. And Sama, I think, may have defined before all of the path factors are preceded by this word Sama, which we often translate as right or wise or true. It means onward leading or beneficial. So Sama Sankapa means wise or right intention. And as I said before, it's a second path factor coming out of wise view. As we deepen and steep in wise view, it then informs our intentions and therefore our actions in the world. And so these are very clear Dhamma intentions or values that the Buddha gave us to align our lives with. The intentions towards renunciation, towards non-ill will, and towards non-harming or harmlessness. And it's interesting, like many of these kinds of lists, they're framed in the negative, non-ill will, non-harming, and renunciation is a is a letting go or a pulling away from. But there's a real skillfulness there in that it's always possible for us to refrain. And from that place of refraining, from that pausing, that place of stability, we can then begin to cultivate. We can then begin to develop. But we've refrained from harming. And then the possibilities are open as to how do these get manifested in a positive way because they all can and do. Renunciation manifests positively as simplicity or generosity. Non-ill will 
becomes goodwill, metta, and harmlessness becomes compassion, actively caring for the well-being and the non-suffering of others. And so to just go over these briefly, the first being renunciation, I think Jaya might speak about this. So just to touch on this is again a Dharma value that the Buddha encouraged, not as a penance. We're so used to, you know, oh, I'm renouncing sugar or I'm giving up this for my health or as a, you know, for Lent or or whatever it might be. And there's always a sense of, of deprivation, often a sense of deprivation in that. But really, the practice of renunciation in this context is for our well-being. It's so we really understand happiness and contentment. Again, I have this talk has a theme of cartoons, but sometimes there's wisdom there. I go where it's found. This is one from Hagar the Horrible, who is a Viking who's often, you know, going out on quests and, you know, fighting and eating. He's got a big belly, so he likes to fight and he likes to eat. He's very indulgent. So in this, there's a few frames. In the first frame, you see him climbing a very steep mountain. All right, so this is in the guru subgenre I may have mentioned of cartoons. In the first frame, you know, there he is laboring up. In the second frame, it's usually the, the there's a mountain, which is a triangle with a wavy line, means snow, and there's a a dark place, that's the cave, and then the guru is usually a man sitting there in, with a long white beard. And Hagar says to him, Oh, great sage, please teach me the secret of happiness. And then the sage replies, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. In the fourth frame, you can see Hagar pausing and saying, Is there anyone else up there I can speak to? <laughs> we often don't like that message. Simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. But this practice invites us to reflect on what is actually for our well-being. I think most of us, if not all of us, have learned it's not about getting more stuff, right? We've had, many of us, the opportunity to try that. Perhaps even had the opportunity to try status, wealth, fame, and seeing that's not it, or certainly learnt from the stories of others, that that doesn't bring happiness, that doesn't bring well-being. And so we shift our perspective. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. So it's a shift in perspective. It's a shift not as a cold turning away from what we actually want, think we need, but looking and finding what's for our own true happiness and well-being. And in the renunciation and the simplicity, there's more space for that, more possibility for that. The Buddha again says, whosoever has turned to renunciation turn to detachment of the mind is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after becoming. So in the space that renunciation brings, it's not empty and deprived, but actually filled with love and freedom. The second wise intention is that of non-ill will, 
which when it moves into the positive is goodwill or metta. And again, as I said, the, the restraint of not acting out of ill will, seeing that intention towards ill will and restraining, then there's that possibility of goodwill developing, but trusting that the non-ill will is still profound. And I love just the simple definition of goodwill, metta, as kindness. We often say loving kindness, but that can seem kind of loaded. But kindness isn't, you know, doesn't get a lot of good press just to be kind. It seems kind of just simple or pedestrian. But so many good qualities exist in kindness. There's caring and generosity and empathy. And I think underneath is renunciation because we're offering something to someone else. We're taking care of someone else in the kindness. And if we spent most of this retreat learning to be kind to ourselves and to others, I think it would be a retreat well spent because that's the doorway then to these other beautiful qualities. I love this Dalai Lama quote where he said, He says, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. Just to have that sense, you know, it is. We we might feel confused or lost or lashing out of anger, but if we clearly track our intentions, we can develop this capacity for kindness. And then the last of the intentions is towards harmlessness, non-harming. This is this beautiful quality of ahimsa, non-harming. The Buddha spoke about again and again. And through this practice, we give others the gift of fearlessness. They don't have to be afraid of us, that we'll harm them. And we give ourselves freedom from remorse. Again, the Buddha talked about the bliss of blamelessness. And all of us know what happens when past memories and hurts come up and unsettle the mind and heart, trouble and turmoil from past memories. As we act in alignment with these values, the mind is able to settle more deeply. So we follow the precepts of not killing or stealing, uh, not harming others through our sexuality, not lying and uh, not clouding the mind with drugs and intoxicants. And again, all of these can be framed in a positive way, that not killing, not harming becomes compassion, not stealing is generosity, care with our sexual energy can be loving kindness, abstaining from wrong speech is wise speech, and not clouding the mind through drugs, intoxicants, is, leads to clarity and wisdom. And so all of these three kinds of intentions are necessary for us in our path of practice. Chaitana, intention, the moment to moment, refining that, understanding that, feeling its kind of energetic, vibrational energy so we can tune into it and know, especially when it's going to move us into action that has consequence. Aditana, determination, is kind of the engine that keeps the whole process going. And then Samasankapa is the big picture. It's the framework within which we refine our determination, our aditana, that then feeds the moment-to-moment level of intention. And so, as I said, they're all 
working with each other. We need to keep our eye on each one of these to bring each of them in to our mindful awareness, our kind awareness. They're all conditioned processes, so there's nothing permanent or personal about them, but mindfulness allows wisdom to influence this development, this um, process of intention at these different levels. As Sharon Salzberg says, by making an effort to notice our intentions with honesty and clarity, we gain a great deal of freedom. If we take the time to pay quiet attention, perhaps through meditation or contemplation, we may develop a completely different understanding of why we do the things we do and a new perspective on how to trust that we've done the best we can. Then we develop the habit of noticing our intentions. Oh, sorry, when we develop the habit of noticing our intentions, we have a much better compass with which to navigate our lives. We learn to cast a glance at our motivations before we speak or act, which frees us to live the life we want. So the coming together of these different levels. I've read of a study that was done, I think a a number of years ago, where through these functional MRIs and brain scans, they did some tests, some experiments where they revealed that we're actually making a decision to do something and it said it was seven seconds before we actually do the action. It's hard to believe it's that long, but I certainly can sense or in my own intuition that there is some subconscious motivated to action that we're often not fully aware of. This this study, though, really, again, begs the question of, of free will. If it's, this decision is being made before we make it, who's making the decision? How is that decision being made? And again, it takes away, I think Andrea spoke about, we identify so much with being the decider, but the decision's already been made. Isn't that what they're saying? But how has that earlier decision been shaped? It's been shaped by something, Right. Otherwise, we'd be making the same decisions now as we do when we were five years old and we'd all be taking afternoon naps and possibly throwing temper tantrums or playing with Legos or whatever we were doing when we were five. Something has shaped even those un- or subconscious intentions that lead then into action. Again, the power of mindfulness is to peel back that curtain and for us to know sooner and more intimately the, this force of intention in the mind in a way that people who are not conscious of intention will never know. Again, they'll live their lives out of their programming and habits and conditionings, out of the, the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, and following the expectations that they've formed, that they've been shaped by, by culture, by society, by work and, and their experiences. But we can start to see this functioning of the mind and possibly even to these levels that wouldn't have seemed accessible. Who knows what the mind can reveal? But I do know that as we focus in on intention and notice intention and choose not to act, to have that, to, to stay in that space point, that 
that space point that mindfulness creates, there's free will there. There's choice there. Wisdom and compassion can come in right there in that moment of choice when we clearly see the intention towards action, the bubbling up of intention, and we pause for a moment. We connect with that, and then we can make a choice. Is this in our interests, our well-being, beneficial for self, other, both, or not? This refinement over and over again is really where the mindfulness can become powerful and begin to shape our lives. With the big picture of these um, samasankapa, these intentions of non-harming, this alignment with dharma values, the engine of aditana keeping us going, and then the moment-to-moment refining how we're living our lives moment-to-moment. So when all of them are working together, this powerful force gets, gets aligned, there's a synergy with our highest and best and most skillful intentions. So I'll just finish with this short um, teaching that used to be attributed to the Buddha, but I think we found it isn't, but it sounds in alignment with his teaching. The thought becomes an intention. The intention manifests as as an action. The action develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought and let it spring from concern for all beings. I would say, therefore, watch closely the intention and let it spring from concern for all beings. In this way, the whole path of our practice can deepen. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention.